Leviticus chapter 6 will be in verse 8. <laughs> we have been covering in these first six chapters of Leviticus, in the first seven chapters actually, we, there are several cameos of Christ. There are five offerings that we've studied. Every single one of these offerings paint a picture, a powerful picture of Jesus. And as you look at the offering itself, there is understanding that comes from that offering. And you see this, this symbolism. You see Jesus. And it's absolutely amazing. As Frank said, the Jesus of Leviticus and Exodus and Genesis and all the Old Testament books as well as the New, Jesus is everywhere. And so in these cameos, we've seen several things. Now you get to verse 8 of chapter 6. And as we move on through, you're going to get some review now. Because now God is speaking to the priests. And he's kind of reviewing these offerings and telling them how they're supposed to go about these offerings. And, and in so doing, while we review these, we're going to see some tidbits, some, some new things we haven't seen so far. Just little things here and there that we're going to grab onto and spend some time on tonight because it's that important. Well, Leviticus chapter 6, verse 8. We read these verses on Sunday. We start here again tonight. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Command Aaron and his sons saying, this is the law for the burnt offering. That's the first offering, the burnt offering. The burnt offering itself shall remain on the hearth on the altar all night until the morning, and the fire on the altar is to be kept burning on it. The priest is to put on his linen robe, and he shall put on undergarments next to his flesh, and he shall take up the ashes to which the fire reduces the burnt offering on the altar, and place them beside the altar. Then he shall take off his garments and put on other garments, and carry the ashes outside the camp to a clean place. The fire on the altar shall be kept burning on it. It shall not go out, but the priest shall burn wood on it every morning, and he shall lay out the burnt offering on it, and offer up the smoke of the fat portions of the peace offerings on it. Fire shall be kept burning continually on the altar. It is not to go out. And again, Lord, we just want to pray that your spirit teach us. And we want to ask your spirit to help us fall in love with your word. And reveal to us through your word, not only new insights, but even some of what you've been doing among us even here tonight. Father, we trust that your spirit is our teacher and our guide. We trust, Lord, that as we open your word and seek the guidance of your spirit, that we will understand things the way that you want us to. So give us ears to hear and open hearts, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Cameo number one, the burnt offering we talked about two weeks ago. It signifies or gives us a picture, picture of the dedication of Christ. The dedication of Christ. And we saw on Sunday that the fire was never to go out, but was to burn continually on the altar. Once that fire was lit, after Israel set up camp, they lit the fire in the altar of burnt offering, and it stayed on day and night, 24-7. That fire was kept burning. A picture of an eternal flame. And we talked about on Sunday three things, and I'm rephrasing them for tonight, but we saw a fearful picture of judgment. That any time you think about fire in the Bible, that symbol of hell comes up. And hell is a real place. This is not something that's just a metaphor. It is true. It is real. Not designed for you and me, but designed for the devil and his angels, Matthew 25 tells us. But a fearful picture of judgment in this constant fire. We also saw, though, a fatherly picture of refinement. The way that God will use fiery trials in our lives, difficult times. Now, mark my words on this because it's come up more than once this week. God will never use discouragement to teach you. He will never use negative uh, feelings and emotions to mold you. 
But he will use hard times. And he will use trials. And the things that Satan means for ill in your life, God will turn around and work to grow you and refine you and make you into the person that he has called you to be. So the fire is a fatherly picture of refinement. But most of all, it's a fantastic picture of the engagement of the Holy Spirit in our lives. The fire of the Spirit. We know exactly what happened day of Pentecost when the apostles received the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on that day. Fire, tongues of fire appeared above their heads. Fire, that symbol of the Holy Spirit. And we know John the Baptist said of Jesus in Luke chapter 3 verse 16 that he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to thoroughly clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. Who are the wheat? The wheat is anybody who has come to faith in Christ to gather you into his barn. But he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. In other words, Christ offers us through his spirit two very clear choices. And I want to pause for a moment and consider these tonight. Two types of fire. The first is the peaceful fire of Christ's spirit. It's that warming fire, that encouragement that comes. You think, what is more peaceful than a fire on the hearth in autumn? At that time of the first freeze, when you're able to sit in your house and it's ice cold outside, but the fire is blazing in your fireplace and you sit back and it's my favorite time of the year. I absolutely love the autumn because everything chills down and there's that sense of warmth. And that's a picture that we see in Christ. The Spirit brings such a peaceful fire. Now listen, following Christ does guarantee fiery trials, but the presence of God's Spirit in you is not to hammer you into submission, but to guide, to comfort, to bring great peace. John chapter 14, verse 26. Jesus says, The Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. I I love this. He will teach you all things. I've had people come up to me after Bible study and tell me things that they learned that I did not say. I'm like, wait a minute. You were in the wrong study because I didn't say that. That wasn't from me. Praise God. That's the Spirit teaching us all things. If you learn anything in our times in the Word together, it's because of Him. It's because He's teaching you. Jesus says, now listen to this, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you, do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. It's interesting, in the context of the Holy Spirit, Jesus says, my peace I leave with you. I'm going to leave my Holy Spirit with you. I'm going to leave my peace with you. For the Holy Spirit brings believers, followers in Christ, a great peace. But there's a second thing that the Holy Spirit does very clearly on our, in our world and it's the provocative fire of conviction. Well, there's the peaceful fire of Christ and the promise that anyone who is in Christ, no matter how difficult life may get, you have a peace that passes understanding. But there's the provocative fire of conviction. What do you mean by that? Flip in your Bibles for a moment to John chapter 16. John 16. The provocative fire of conviction, that fire of the Spirit that is compelling, that is convicting, that is driving us in the world toward God. John chapter 16, verse 8. A few verses here that are the type of verses that if you read them and just kind of read through them, you get the sense, oh, that's just that's language I don't get, so I'm just going to assume it's all good and, and move on to the next thing. I don't want you to do that with this. I want you to understand what Jesus is saying clearly. 
verse 8 of John 16, he's talking about the Holy Spirit again, and he says, And he, when he comes, will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. And then he goes on to explain this. He says, Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you no longer see me. And concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world has been judged. What does Jesus mean? The provocative working of the Spirit. What does he mean concerning the conviction of sin? Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Well, without belief in Christ... Without trusting in Jesus, the only way a person can become convicted of sin is if the Holy Spirit reveals it to them. It's the only way you're going to realize that you're sinning. Otherwise, without the Spirit at work, we wouldn't even know. We wouldn't have a clue. Now, God gave the law as a standard, and Israel began to be able to measure their sins against the law. But your average person in the world is not going to know. How do you know right from wrong? Where does that come from? This idea we've talked about of conscience. Conscience is the Spirit of God. Convicting the world of sin. And it's another instance of the grace of God at work. Even among those who would say, I don't want to believe in God. I don't care if God wants me to believe in Him or not. The Lord's saying, I'm going to keep convicting you. I'm going to continue to send my spirit into your life to convict you of sin. To show you when you're doing something wrong. To make you uncomfortable. And it's in those moments of discomfort that we start to go, wow. Something's going on here. My life doesn't seem to be ticking right. I, I, I don't seem to be able to do that. I'm, I'm failing here. I'm doing wrong. It's like C.S. Lewis said, where did this idea of right and wrong come from if not from the Spirit of God? He brings the conviction of sin. He also brings the conviction of righteousness. Now, he says an interesting thing. He says, concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you no longer see me. What does that mean? It means that once Christ left the earth, the righteousness of his spirit is at work restraining the tide of evil. His spirit is at work restraining the tide of evil. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 7 tells us the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he's taken out of the way. And we've said this before. Do you realize... That in this world, the only reason why it's not worse than it is, is because the Holy Spirit is restraining the evil that Satan would do. It's because the Spirit is present. It's because the church has the Spirit within it. And for all of the bad things that the press loves to point at the church for, there is still an amazing amount of good being done through human beings in this funky little group called the church odd because how could human beings ever do anything right because the Holy Spirit is with us and he is convicting the world of sin and he's convicting the world of righteousness holding back stemming the tide of evil but he also convicts in terms of judgment Jesus said concerning judgment because the world ruler of this world has already been judged what does that mean it's that knowledge in our hearts it's that conviction that the rejection of God is the acceptance of Satan. And even a non-Christian person can recognize that. I was talking with Scott a few minutes ago about a friend of his who uh, is you know, combating the idea of Christianity with what he calls science and with evolution and with all these different things and holding God at bay. And the truth is, it's not science that keeps anybody from God. It's rebellion. And it's that sense of choice and we all have it 
We all have the choice to make and the right to make that choice. The fire of conviction. God's Spirit in the world pressing the issue in the heart of every man calling man often through fiery conviction into the peaceful warmth of Christ's love. See, that's the end goal for the Holy Spirit. Not that we would remain uncomfortable but to drive us through that to the point where we are sitting at the feet of Jesus at that warming fire of the presence of His Spirit in all of that peace. Now, listen very closely because this is direction setting for the bridge. How does a church, especially a new fellowship, approach the idea of the Holy Spirit, especially when that church is made up of such a diverse group of people? I have asked that question a lot. In the almost two years that we've been here, I have asked God numerous times, how do we approach your spirit? How do we grow in the way you want us to grow? And there are very different ideas in this body of what that looks like, of how we respond, how we relate to the Holy Spirit. How do we handle this, Lord? And I keep falling back on the Word thinking, well, if I don't have the answer, God does. So we can find it there. And I have a great verse I want to share with you, and I know you've heard it before, but it really spoke to me this week. And this, by the way, is how we will deal with the Holy Spirit at the British Christian Fellowship. Okay? So we're going to make a pronouncement tonight. 1 Thessalonians 5.19 Paul says, and I quote, Do not quench the Spirit. Clear enough? <laughs> but he doesn't stop there. He goes on. Because again, there is, there is the issue of how do we approach the Holy Spirit? Especially because we know, we all know that in certain circles, the Holy Spirit and the power of the Spirit has been abused. Has been used for personal gain. Has been used for thrills beyond what the Spirit would do. How do we get this right? Paul says, do not quench the Spirit. How do I do that? He says, do not despise prophetic utterances. Do not despise prophetic utterances. Now I, I hear that and I kind of go, <laughs> prophetic utterances. How do we know when someone's uttering something prophetic and something non-prophetic? How do we know if it's just some nut out there just saying whatever's on their mind? Well, Paul says do not despise prophetic utterances. That word prophetic utterances is actually propheteia. Propheteia in the Greek, which means prophesying. So, Paul's saying, don't quench the Spirit. Well, how do I quench the Spirit? I quench the Spirit when I deny prophesying. When I reject that outright. When I say, I don't want anything to do with that weird out there stuff. I want it cut and dried and, and simple and easy. Do not despise prophetic utterances. Do not quench the Spirit. Now, there's a great balance because the very next verse, Paul then says this. By, but examine everything carefully and hold fast to that which is good. So how do you do it? Well, there it is. Do not quench the Spirit. Don't reject the gifts of the Spirit, the utterances of the Spirit, even prophecies that, that are clearly of the Spirit. Don't reject that. But test it. Check it out. Don't just take it at face value. But Paul says, examine everything carefully and hold on to that which is good. Okay? Proverbs chapter 2 verse 3 tells us, For if you cry for discernment, lift your voice for understanding. If you seek her as silver and search for her as for hidden treasures, then you will discern the fear of the Lord and the knowledge and discover the knowledge of God. And Hebrews 5.14 says this, 
Solid food is for the mature who, because of practice, have their senses trained to discern good and evil. What happens, I think, in a lot of churches, especially churches that would reject the work of the Holy Spirit, the manifest work, the obvious presence of the Spirit doing things, the reason why I believe that tends to be rejected is because we're afraid of what might happen. The problem is it's a leap to go from I'm afraid of the Holy Spirit to, to just allowing the Spirit to do anything. Which sounds kind of funny, doesn't it? Like we have the power to allow the Spirit to do anything. And yet, you know what? God gives us that power. We can quench the Spirit. You can in your life quench the Spirit. You have that choice. You can, I believe, be a saved Christian on your way to heaven. You will be in the heavenlies with the body of Christ having quenched the Spirit your whole entire life. It's just that when you get there, you're going to have to do some catching up. You're going to have to go, wow, there was more. And I just said no to it. It's not a matter of salvation, folks. But it is a matter of discernment. Let's not be afraid of the Spirit. At the same time, let's make sure that we discern the work of the Spirit. Well, how do we do that? Let me give you three three things to think about, and then we'll move on. The true prophetia... The true prophecies, the true work of the Spirit, if you will, will never, listen to this, will never supersede, deny, or replace Scripture. God is not going to change what He's already said. So if someone says, I have, I believe a word from the Lord, as we were sharing tonight, I I think God is showing me something. And it is in contrast to God's word, or it's against God's word, or it takes and twists some amount of God's word, it is not from the Holy Spirit. Because he's not going to give his word and turn around the next day and go, ah, you know, that was good then, but let's change something. Let's make a new thing. But let's have what some call the continuing revelation. Kind of ongoing. Paul says this is it. Jesus said to John, if you add to or subtract from the words of this book, <laughs> then all the curses of this book are on you. And he's talking about revelation. And you don't want those curses. The true prophetia will not supersede, deny, or replace Scripture. Secondly, the true prophetia will always, always elevate the person of Jesus. It will never diminish Him. You will never hear from the Spirit in such a way that makes Jesus any less than glorified God. And thirdly, the true prophetia, that is the speaking of the Spirit to us, is God's gift, not man's guise. God's gift, not man's guise. It is never to be used in a way to make me or anyone else look other than what we are, and that's just children of God, trying to listen to our Father and seek and discern His will. Now we come to the second offering again, and we've covered these, but I will repeat this to you. Cameo number two, the grain offering. We saw already the burnt offering is a picture of the dedication of Christ. We talked about that a couple weeks ago. The grain offering is a picture of the perfection of Christ. Verse 14. Now this is the law of the grain offering. The sons of Aaron shall present it on the altar before... Uh, we shall present it before the Lord in front of the altar. And then one of them shall lift up from it a handful of the fine flour of the grain offering with its oil and all its incense that is on the grain offering. And he shall offer it up in smoke on the altar, a soothing aroma, as its memorial offering to the Lord. What is left of it, Aaron and his sons are to eat. It shall be eaten as unleavened cakes in a holy place. They are to eat it in the court of the tent of meeting. It shall not be baked with leaven. I have given it as their share. For my offerings by fire it is most holy, like a sin offering and the guilt offering. 
every male among the sons of Aaron excuse me may eat it it is a permanent ordinance throughout your generations who from the offerings by fire to the Lord whoever touches them will become consecrated now this is important after offering the Lord's portion of the grain offering the rest of the grain that's brought the rest of the sifted flour or the unleavened cakes that is brought belongs to the priests as a kind of holy provision Someone have a green Toyota Camry? You've got you got them blocked in, dude. <laughs> Thanks, Jim. His name's Joe, but I've called him Jim for so long I just can't stop. <laughs> Back to what we were reading: the grain offering. What's interesting is God says, "Bring the grain offering," but He gets some of it. The priests get the rest. And we begin to see something here that as God's explaining this to the priests, we'll see all the way through that there are aspects and parts of some of these offerings that belong to the priests. God is providing for the priests. Now, being one in ministry, please understand it's not self-promotion time and it's not Pastor Appreciation Month, but God takes care of those in ministry. Of his priests, of his leaders, God provides for them in very special ways, and you'll see this over and over in the Bible. First Timothy chapter five, verse seventeen. Paul says the elders who rule well are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. For the scripture says you shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing, and the laborer is worthy of his wages. Now I don't mind being compared to a laborer, an ox is a little offensive. But Galatians chapter six, verse six says the following the one who is taught the word is to share all good things with the one who teaches so if you want to go out for dessert tonight I'm up for that I like this verse and the reason I like it is because it shows us that God places a premium on the service of his people especially in the teaching of his word God wants his people to be taught God wants there to be those who spend a good part of their time studying and in the Word so that His people can hear the Word. And it's a great blessing for a church and gang, it's a great blessing for me as a pastor to have that kind of, of time and especially that kind of expectation from you and from our leadership. God basically says to the priests, I don't want you out tending the flocks of sheep or harvesting the wheat or repairing the tents. I expect you to be dedicated to my work. What work? Peter says, Acts 6 verse 4, we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. The ministry of the word. Now there are those who will say, and I've actually had this said to me before, Pastor Rick, with your head in the Bible all the time, you don't really know what life is like in the real world. To which I respond, I don't know where there is a better place to go than God's word to understand the real world. You want to understand what's going on in this world? You want to know how to live this life? You want discernment and understanding and all the things that we've already talked about this evening? Then you go to God's word. And you will see the world more clearly than anybody who is walking in the world without the light of His Word. And so we spend time together in His Word. Who understands the real world better than the Lord? None of us. Certainly not the nightly news. So God says, I want some people set aside for my people and I want them cared for. Leviticus chapter 9, or 6 verse 19, Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying... 
This is the offering which Aaron and his sons are to present to the Lord on the day when he is anointed. The tenth of an ephah of fine flour as a regular grain offering, half of it in the morning and half of it in the evening. It shall be prepared with oil on a griddle. When it is well stirred, you shall bring it. You shall present the grain offering in baked pieces as a soothing aroma to the Lord. The anointed priest who will be in his place among his sons shall offer it. By a permanent ordinance it shall be entirely offered up in smoke to the Lord. So every grain offering of the priest shall be burned entirely. It shall not be eaten. And there's another principle here and it's interesting to me. This is an offering in this little section we haven't seen yet. This is one that's not part of the original slides. You could say it's an add-on offering and it's also an add-on cameo of Christ. This is the priest's offering. God expected the priests to give an offering, an offering as well, a tithe to the Lord when they were anointed to be priests. The priest's offering shows us the contribution of Christ. The contribution of Christ. And again, this is new. The priest was required to give just like everyone else. Now, a couple weeks ago, we saw that the, the priesthood in Israel at Jesus' time had made some errors with this. They had decided that their offering, they have a word for it, it's korban. And in Mark chapter 7, verses 9 through 14, the story is told where the priests are saying, it's korban. What I would normally give to care for my parents, that's korban, that's my offering. And so they got themselves out of the business of mercy and caregiving for parents and for others outside of the temple. They said, it's korban. I've made my offering. And I have known pastors okay it was me <laughs> who believed that their service to the church was their offering and who didn't give in terms of financially to a church until I was 30 years old and it wasn't until that point when I started to realize that if I'm going to ask someone else to give I'd better be doing it as well God expects his leaders to give. He expects his leaders to contribute. No pastor is exempt from the offerings of the church. As a matter of fact, to my mind, the pastor better be leading the flock when it comes to giving. Because how can one stand up and say, hey, tithing's a great thing. You really ought to be doing that and not be doing it yourself. The priest was required to give like everyone else. And Jesus is the great example, the contribution of Christ. Jesus never asked you to do anything that he didn't already do. Jesus says, hey, I want you to be baptized. He was baptized. Jesus says, take up your cross. He took up his cross. Jesus says, love each other. Well, greater love has no one than his. You won't find a single command of Christ that he didn't perform in his life. When the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, Jesus stripped away any ill-perceived rights of a godly leader to lord it over the flock, to be exempt from what the flock is doing, from what anyone else in the church body is doing. And you can hold my feet to that fire, by the way. If ever I stand up here and say, you all need to be doing blah, and I'm not doing blah, whatever that might be in my life. I don't have that right. Jesus said in Luke 22, verse 27, For who is greater, the one who reclines at the table or the one who serves? Well, of course, it's the one who reclines at the table. But I am among you as one who serves. And if that's not enough, how about a real mind blower? Jesus says when he comes back, those who find him or who he finds watching and ready 
and anticipating His coming, you know what He says? They will recline at the table and I will gird myself with the towel and I will serve them. Wow. That's a promise. Luke chapter 12, verse 37. Look it up. And that's why Paul said in Titus chapter 2, verse 13, We are looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Christ Jesus who gave Himself, who gave Himself for us to redeem us. It's the contribution of Christ. Well, verse 24, Leviticus chapter 6, going on. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and to his sons, saying, This is the law of the sin offering. So, cameo number three, the sin offering. We saw in it the expiation of Christ, the sin offering. He says, In the place where the burnt offering, verse 25, is slain, the sin offering shall be slain before the Lord. It is most holy. The priest who offers it for a sin, for sin shall eat it, and it shall be eaten in a holy place in the court of the tent of meeting. Anyone who touches its flesh will become consecrated. And when any of its blood splashes on a garment in a holy place, you shall wash what was splashed on. Also, he says, going on, the earthenware vessel in which it was boiled shall be broken, and if it was boiled in a bronze vessel, then it shall be scoured and rinsed in water. Every male among the priests may eat of it. Again, the provision for the priests. They may eat of it. It is most holy. But no sin offering of which any of the blood is brought into the tent of meeting to make atonement in the holy place shall be eaten. It shall be burned with fire. Yom Kippur, Day of Atonement. That offering, no priest was allowed to eat of it. It was consumed, burned up in fire. And so again, in the sin offering, we saw the expiation of Christ. And by way of review, 1 John chapter 4, verse 10, tells us, In this is love. Not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins, or the expiation for our sins, or literally, to put an end to our sins. That's what those big words mean. Simply to put an end to. And Psalm 103 verse 12 tells us, As far as the east is from the west, so far has He removed our transgressions from us. How far is the east from the west? They never meet. That's how far God has removed your sin. That's good news. I'll tell you what, especially if you've had a week where maybe you've been feeling a little doubtful about the grace in your life, or you've been having some sin struggle. God has removed your sin as far as east from the west. Propitiation, Christ has put an end to our sin. But watch this, this is interesting. Another caveat to this offering that we had not yet seen. Verse 28, going back, the first part of the verse tells us, the earthenware vessel in which it was boiled shall be broken. Does that ring a bell for anyone? The earthenware vessel is broken. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4.7 we have this treasure in earthen vessels so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not from ourselves. And the only way, the only way according to verse 28 for an earthenware vessel to be holy is for it to be broken. And we are earthenware vessels. We are jars of clay. We are fragile. We are breakable. And God would say we need to be broken to be holy. Speaks of the brokenness of coming before God. Again, Andrew Bonar, in his incredible commentary, said the sense of sin renders Jesus precious to the soul. The broken vessel, the one who comes to God, the one who's not rebelling against God, but who is broken before God, can be used of the Lord. 
It's that picture as we talked about of godly sorrow that leads to life-giving repentance and freedom and joy. I talked to a gentleman on Sunday morning and man, what a great talk. To watch someone's eyes light up who has spent their life in legalism and judgment. And for them to hear the message of grace for the first time. And for literally, you see, it's like a light going on in their eyes. And they're just like, really? Well, what about this? No, grace covers you. Really? Really? I mean, he just kept saying over and over, really? I'm like, yes, really, stop saying that. (laughs) It's grace. And God's grace is all surpassing. It's wonderful. But we've got to be broken to see it. It's a recognition of our sin that allows us to fall before the Father and go, Wow, Lord, you do love me. It's also an indication, by the way, of the possibility of a rocky road if you choose to follow Christ. Because Paul went on to say that we are like these, we have this treasure in earthen vessels. He says, We're afflicted in every way, but not crushed. (laughs) Perplexed, but not despairing. Persecuted, but not forsaken. That's one of my favorite ones right there. Man, Satan can tear at you in every way, shape, and form, but you are not forsaken of the Lord. He will not leave you. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always caring about in the body. The dying of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our body. And Paul says further in 2 Corinthians 4.17, For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. We're just these jars of clay, but we've got a treasure, don't we? The Spirit of Christ in us. And that's why Bebo Norman writes and we sang, Take this body, build it up, may it be broken as an offering of love, for I am nothing without you. Cameo number four, the guilt offering. The guilt offering shows us the provision of Christ. Cameo number four, beginning in verse, uh, chapter 7 and verse 1. By the way, God is doing all the speaking here. Did you recognize that? Did you see that? And he continues, every line is God speaking. I mean, for the first seven chapters, it's just God, God, God. It is all His words. There's no... You know, man sticking in there and saying, hey, what about this? Or adding little, this is all the Lord just speaking to us. This is the law of the guilt offering. It is most holy. It is most holy. In the place where they slay the burnt offering, they are to slay the guilt offering. And he shall sprinkle its blood around on the altar. And then he shall offer from all its fat, the fat tail and the fat that covers the entrail, and the two kidneys with the fat that is on them, which is on the loins, and the lobe of the liver he shall remove with the kidneys. The priest really had to roll up his sleeves and do some work, didn't he? The priest shall offer them up and smoke on the altar as an offering by fire to the Lord. It is a guilt offering. Every male among the priests may eat of it. It shall be eaten in a holy place. It is most holy. The guilt offering is like the sin offering. There's one law for them. The priest who makes atonement with it, listen to this, shall have it. So again, the priest is provided for. He shall have it. Also, the priest who presents any man's burnt offering, that priest shall have for himself the skin of the burnt offering which he has presented. Likewise, every grain offering that is baked in the oven and everything prepared in a pan or on a griddle shall belong to the priest who presents it. Every grain offering mixed with oil or dry shall belong to all the sons of Aaron, to all alike. The guilt offering reveals for us the provision of Christ. Now, we talked about how... The guilt offering is this wonderful offering of God. It's a step beyond the sin offering. 
The sin offering takes away our sin. The guilt offering removes guilt. See, God is not just concerned with removing our sin, but helping us experience that removal. And, and to know that we don't have to wallow in guilt over sin that's been removed. And so for Israel, he gives the sin offering and the guilt offering. But I want you to see something else, another little thing that kind of stuck out to me here. The priest is cared for in the offerings, but for the first time we see that the priest gets the skin. That when the animal is offered up, the skin of the animal now belongs to the priest. Why? Well, he could use it for all kinds of things, I guess. He could use it for a nice suede leather bomber jacket. You know, he could have a nice leather robe, a cool leather tent, whatever. Now, this could cause a problem, especially for some of the less fortunate of Israel who might not even be able to bring a cow or a ram who could only bring a couple of turtle doves and they see the priest strutting around there in a leather jacket. Or they see the priest's sons, Aaron's sons, the PKs. The priest kids. And they're wandering around with this nice leather clothing and they say, well, that's not really fair. I can't even afford to bring anything more than a couple of turtle doves to the Lord and the priest's sons are walking around wearing leather. Listen, there's an important, there's an important principle here. Your offering is to the Lord. Let the Lord worry about the priest or the pastor or the elders. Your giving, gang, is between you and God. Jeff said something in our elders meeting the other night and, and, and he was right on target. You know, the little old ladies who respond to the TV evangelists and they write a check and they send it off, they are going to be honored by God regardless of what the televangelist does with the money. That's beside the point. What is done with the money that is offered at the bridge is not, and I, hear me on this, understand what I'm saying, it's not your concern. Your concern is your offering to the Lord. The elders and the pastor are going to have to answer for how that money is spent. Anyone who spends money that's been given to this church will answer for it to the Lord. And you're going to see in a couple chapters, probably on Sunday, you're going to see how the priest's kids had to pay for the ill use of an offering. God's not going to let it go. He's not going to let them off the hook. There is accountability. But so many people go to church and when they're writing their check, they're thinking, well, I don't know if I'm going to give this week because they're just not doing enough in missions. And I'm very missions oriented. And since this church doesn't do enough in missions, I'm taking my tithe and I'm giving it somewhere else. And you know what? To to my mind, I say, fine, (laughs) give it somewhere else. Because if you can't give it cheerfully here, we don't want it. Yeah. God doesn't want it unless it's given with an open heart. But the easiest way to make your contribution to the Lord an actual act of worship is to have it be between you and God and not worry about what happens to it when it leaves your hands. So the priests are given this animal skin. Pardon me a second. I'm on Sudafed, so I need some here. The Lord's going to deal with the pastor. But I don't want you to miss this, and it's even more precious to me. This skin that the priest gets. If, if the priest is sharp, if he's thinking, if he's got his spiritual thinking cap on, when he receives that skin, he recognizes something amazing. God has just drawn a thread back to the first offering. The very first offering that ever happened in the Bible. What are you talking about? Genesis chapter 3. In verse 20, tells us the following. 
The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all the living. And the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. It was the first offering. Because to make garments of skin, God had to sacrifice animals in the garden. The first mention of an actual sacrificial offering in Scripture right there. And then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil, and now he might stretch out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to cultivate the ground from which he was taken. And so he drove the man out, and at the east of the garden of Eden he stationed the cherubim and the flaming sword which turned every direction to guard the way to the tree of life. And there's more here than simply the skin that was given to Adam and Eve to cover them. There's more here than just the fact that that was the first offering. There's a thread, again, that we see here. And you Bible students, you know exactly where I'm headed with this. There's a picture God is drawing. As Adam and Eve exit the garden of Eden, they would look back. They could see, guarding the way to the tree of life, two cherubim. Somewhere there on the ground, blood sprinkled from the sacrifice as they looked back. And it's a picture of the mercy seat. For all the way from creation up to the creation of the mercy seat, what is on top? What is the mercy seat? It's that, it's that piece of furniture that sits on top of the Ark of the Covenant. And it's made of what the Bible tells us, Exodus 25:18. You shall make two cherubim of gold. Make them of hammered work at the two ends of the mercy seat. Two cherubim, just like the two cherubim, guarding the way to the tree of life. And Leviticus chapter 16 verse 14 tells us the high priest shall take some of the blood of the bull and sprinkle it with his finger on the mercy seat. The mercy seat's very design recalls the first sacrifice of God which was to cover the nakedness, the shame, the sin of Adam and Eve. But it doesn't stop there. For the thread not only goes back to creation, it goes forward to our very future. Revelation chapter 5 verse 6 tells us, In the midst of the throne and of the four beasts, who Ezekiel tells us are cherubim, stood a lamb having been slain. It's the same picture in all three places. At the very beginning, God knew exactly what he was doing. And he creates, has them build, craft the mercy seat as a picture of what he did and as a picture of what he will do. And so the skins were given to the priests. And by the way, this also speaks of the way God covers his people as well. The way God covers his people, the royal priesthood. What do you mean? Well, Galatians chapter 3, verse 26 says, For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. By the way, side note, I want to make sure you don't miss this. We sing this song, I call you father, you call me son. Ladies, you can say God calls you sons. You are his sons. We are all his sons. You are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. The covering for the royal priesthood. Rolling on, cameo number five, the peace offering. It's the satisfaction of Christ. The peace offering is that one offering that was shared, you may recall. Shared between the offerer and the Lord. The Lord had some, the person who offered it had some. It was as if they shared a meal together. Verse 11 of chapter 7 goes on and says, This is the law of the sacrifice of the peace offerings which shall be presented to the Lord. If he offers it by way of thanksgiving, then along with the sacrifice of thanksgiving, he shall offer unleavened cakes mixed with oil, and unleavened wafers spread with oil, 
oil and cakes of well-stirred fine flour mixed with oil. With the sacrifice of his peace offerings for thanksgiving, he shall present his offering with cakes of leavened bread. Cakes of leavened bread. Leaven, again, is a type of sin. So why is leavened bread being offered up in this offering? I recently shared that during Sukkoth, the Feast of Pentecost, there's this practice, the waving of the omer. And at the time of the waving of the omer, there are two leavened cakes that are waved. It's called a wave offering before the Lord, where, where the gift or the offering is given to the priest, and the priest then waves it before the Lord. And what he waves is these two leavened cakes. And, and if you were here, you recall, they actually represent Jews and Gentiles, these two leavened cakes. Now, the Jews say it represents the two tables of the law. But that's not possible because the Bible tells us, Psalm 19.7, the law of the Lord is perfect. So if leaven is a picture of sin, it cannot, it cannot represent the law. Because the law is perfect. But these two leaven cakes, and leaven being this picture of sin, it's Jews, it's Gentiles, it's the peace offering. Where God is intentioning to bring Jew and Gentile together. Ephesians 2 verse 14. For he is our peace. Who made both groups into one. And broke down the barrier of the dividing wall. By abolishing in his flesh the enmity. Which is the law of the commandments contained in ordinances. So that in himself he might make the two into one new man. Thus establishing peace and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross by having put to death its enmity. Sin among Jews, leaven. Sin, leaven among Gentiles, this picture of the offering being made. The leavened cakes. But there's one more thing I want to say on this. A lot of times we'll come to Bible study or, or to Sunday worship or times we won't come because our hearts are just, we can't do it. We think, you know, the way I've been this week, there is so much leaven in me, I have nothing to offer the Lord. Maybe you sat in church on a Sunday morning and communion's being passed and it comes around to you and you just pass on by because you're thinking, I can't take it today. I have too much leaven in me. There's too much sin. Can I encourage you to bring the leaven cake anyway and offer it to the Lord just as you are let Him deal with you. Let the sin that He promised to remove from you, the guilt that He said He would take away, let it be His problem. Don't shy away. Don't avoid the one place that God wants you to go. If you have a time of prayer through the week, and you're coming to that time of prayer and thinking, I just can't today because I've just gotten in a big fight with my spouse. I can't go before the Lord. I'll tell you where you need to be. Before the Lord. Go to Him. Let your Father grab you in His arms and accept your offering, even your offering that has leaven in it. Verse 15 tells us, As for the flesh of the sacrifice of His thanksgiving peace offerings, it shall be eaten. On the day of His offering, He shall not leave any of it over until morning. And I like this. God's saying, eat it now. Don't save it. Savor it. Enjoy it right now. Bring it and eat it. Psalm 34 verse 8 says, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. So bring the gift, bring the peace offering, he says to the people, and dig in. Don't wait. But he does make provision for waiting a little bit, if they want to. Verse 16, if the sacrifice of his offering is a votive, or a free will offering, it shall be eaten on the day that he offers his sacrifice. And on the next day, what is left of it may be eaten. 
But whatever is left over from the flesh of the sacrifice on the third day shall be burned with fire. And we say, well, that makes perfect sense. They can't refrigerate the meat. Say what? Even some meat that's refrigerated, I don't want to eat after three days. Have you done that look in the refrigerator and there's a piece of meat or something in there? And you look at it and you say, Honey, what is this? She says, smell it. So you pull it out and smell it. It doesn't smell like anything at all. Well, what does it look like? Well, it could be meat. It could be cake. <laughs> Looks like meat cake. So you throw it away and you thank the Lord that you're saving your life. Well, that's what he's saying. He's saying, Israel, I don't want you, I don't want you to eat this after three days. Now, those of you who, who have spent some time studying this know there's a whole lot more than just the fact that he's trying to protect them from bad meat. Because on the third day, the third day, the offering becomes corrupt. And as it pictures, it points us directly to Christ. God says, you've got three days. But on the third day, Jesus, you're coming out of the grave. Because I will not leave you to be corrupted. You will not rot. You will not spoil. I won't leave you. Psalm 16.10 And I, oh, I just love this. David said, For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo shatak in the Hebrew. It's corruption or decay. David is speaking prophetically, though he may or may not have known it. Peter draws back to that. In Acts chapter 2, he quotes this very psalm. And he says, Brethren, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David, <laughs> that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. In other words, David is rotting. <laughs> if you open up his tomb, there's no, probably not even anything left at this point. Oops. I guess God allowed him to see decay. Well, it was prophetic. Peter goes on and says, He was a prophet. And he knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to seat one of his descendants on his throne. And he looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of Christ, that he was neither abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh suffer decay. And Peter makes a compelling argument, so compelling that 3,000 people were saved that very day. David did decay in the grave. Christ did not. And to leave Jesus in the grave is to deny the heart and soul and hope of Christianity. And Thomas Jefferson did it. Thomas Jefferson wrote a translation of the Bible that left out everything supernatural. He loved the teachings of Jesus, but couldn't believe in the miracles of Jesus. And so Thomas Jefferson's Bible ends with these words, There laid they Jesus in the sepulchre, and they departed. How tragic. How sad. How hopeless. What a waste of a life. Flip over quickly to 1 Corinthians 15, if you will. I don't want to keep you... Well, sure, I do want to keep you, but I'm not going to keep you much longer. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 16. Paul is talking about this, and this is so important and so powerful to know as, as a believer in Christ. 1 Corinthians 15, 16. Paul says, For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. Those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. Those who have died in Christ, they're gone. 
And he says in verse 19, If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. Most to be pitied. But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. For since by man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. But each, each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits. And after that, those who are Christ at His coming. And then comes the end when He hands over the kingdom to God, to the God and Father, when He has abolished all rule and all authority and all power. The third day. The third day was not a day of corruption. And so the, the meal offering or the, or the sacrifice was not to be left till the third day if it was to be eaten in the peace offering because that was a day of corruption. And God said it's not going to be. Not with my son. Not with Jesus. And this, by the way, is the reason the first century church met on Sunday. And it wasn't, by the way, you historians, it didn't start with Constantine. It wasn't in the third century when Constantine proclaimed this day. Now he did. In the third century he proclaimed it as the day that the entire Roman state would stop and and worship God under law. Which is really unfortunate for the church. But the first century church met on the first day of the week. Why did they do that? Because on the Sabbath, on Saturday, Jesus was in the grave. But on Sunday he was alive. And the early Christians began to recognize and realize that is the day of our celebration. That is the day of our worship. The third day. Not the day of corruption, but the day of life. And Jesus on Sunday rose incorruptible, the first fruits of the first resurrection. Revelation chapter 20 verse 6 says, Blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Over these the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with Him for a thousand years. You might go, wait a minute, wait a minute. Second death, first resurrection, what are we talking about here? Think about multiple deaths and resurrections? Absolutely. We're going to get into it in depth as as we study Revelation. We're going to um, be doing that this fall, not on Wednesday nights. And by the way, let me encourage you, we're going to continue going straight through the Bible on Wednesday nights. I'm going to offer Revelation as a study another time, and I'll let you know when if you're interested in that. But I want to say a couple things quickly, if I may, about this idea of the first resurrection. What does that mean? What is the first resurrection? The first resurrection began with Jesus on the third day. Jesus broke the chains of death on that day and He initiated, inaugurated, if you will, the first resurrection. He was the first fruits of the resurrection, of the first resurrection. So there is a resurrection that began with Jesus, it's the first one, and it has continued. And it will continue with those saints who have died in Christ. Paul tells us in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 that the dead in Christ will rise first as part of that first resurrection. Jesus, Paul says, the first fruits. And then those who are alive at His coming, that is, the raptured church, will be caught up, will be resurrected in the first resurrection. Awesome. And then those who come to Christ before His glorious return to earth, there will, I believe, and I can talk about, with, about this with you another time, but there will be those who are saved during the tribulation, through the tribulation. God's grace still is extending. But before His glorious return to earth, all those who have come to Christ, that's the first resurrection. Paul says again in verse 23 of 1 Corinthians 15, Each in his own order. Christ, the first fruits, after that those who are Christ at His coming, and then comes the end when He hands over the kingdom to the God and Father when He has abolished all rule and all authority and all power.
power. Verse 25 says, For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. And the last enemy that will be abolished is death. So the first resurrection, I've defined for you, the second resurrection is for all those who have died outside of or without Christ. They will not be resurrected in the first resurrection, but in the second resurrection. And that is a resurrection to judgment. Revelation chapter 20 verse 13 And the sea gave up the dead which were in it And death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them And they were judged Every one of them according to their deeds If you've had some confusion about this judgment according to deeds The church, anyone in Christ Is not judged according to your deeds You are judged according to the grace of Jesus Poured out at Calvary That's your judgment day Which means it's already happened But they are, those who die outside of Christ are judged according to their deeds. And Dwight Moody said the following, he said, one of my favorite quotes, He who is born once will die twice. He who is born twice will die once, if at all. Let that sink in. That's a powerful word. Two possible births. One physical birth, one spiritual birth. Jesus said you need to be born again a second time. Born of the Spirit. Two possible deaths. One is a physical death. The other is a spiritual death. Two possible resurrections. Both of them are spiritual and both of them are eternal. And you want to be part of the first resurrection. Let's finish this up. Move really fast here. Leviticus 7, verse 19. Also, the flesh that touches anything unclean shall not be eaten, it shall be burned with fire. As for other flesh, anyone who is clean may eat such flesh. But the person who eats the flesh of the sacrifice of peace offerings which belong to the Lord in his uncleanness, that person shall be cut off from his people. When anyone touches anything unclean, whether human uncleanness or an unclean animal or any unclean detestable thing, and eats of the flesh of the sacrifice of the peace offerings which belong to the Lord, that person shall be cut off from his people. Now, verses 22 through 27 further declare that the eating of blood and fat is an abomination to the Lord that will result in being cut off from the people. What's going on here? God is declaring holiness for Israel. He is beginning to delineate. He's giving specific prohibitions against unclean meat and blood and fat to define holiness and to set Israel apart. To say you're not going to be like the pagans that you are surrounded with. You are going to be different. You're going to be unique. And this is part of the way that I'm defining that for you. Uncleanness shall not have a place in the camp of Israel. He's drawing them away from paganism. He is drawing them away from the flesh and toward himself. Verse 28, skipping down, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the sons of Israel, saying, He who offers the sacrifice of his peace offerings to the Lord shall bring his offering to the Lord from the sacrifice of his peace offerings. By his own hands, or his own hands, are to bring offerings by fire to the Lord. He shall bring fat with the breast that the breast may be presented as a wave offering before the Lord. Remember the wave offering is held up before the Lord. It's literally waved before the Lord. The priest shall offer up the fat and the smoke on the altar, but the breast shall belong to Aaron and his son. So Aaron gets a nice piece of breast meat there. Okay? Going on, you shall give the right thigh to the priest as a contribution from the sacrifices of your peace offerings. 
the one among the sons of Aaron who offers the blood of the peace offerings and the fat, the right thigh shall be his as his portion. For I have taken the breast of the wave offering and the thigh of the contribution from the sons of Israel, from the sacrifices of their peace offerings, and have given them to Aaron the priest and to his sons as their due forever from the sons of Israel. Let me explain this quickly and we'll be done. The breast and the thigh. What's the point? Why is it that the priest gets the breast meat? And why do they get the thigh? Well, first off, you need to understand the thigh is literally, the word here is shok. And shok in the Hebrew means the shoulder. So that helps us in our understanding a little bit. The breast and the shoulder. Why the breast and the shoulder? Let me ask you a question. See if we can just figure it out. What was on the breast piece of the high priest? What was on the breastpiece of the high priest? There were stones. Twelve stones. Representing? Representing the sons of Israel. Why? Because the high priest had on his heart the sons of Israel. His role, his job was to care about, to, to, to be passionate for the sons of Israel. And so right over his heart, over his breast if you will, he had those twelve stones. The breast is a representation of the heart. And so the breast that is offered is given to the high priest, but it's a wave offering of the Lord. It's a devotion of the heart. And the high priest is now given the breast because his heart is to be for the people. What about the shoulder? What's on the shoulder? Two onyx stones. And on the onyx stones, again, six names on one onyx stone, six names on the other onyx stone, on the garments of the high priest, names of the sons of Israel. Because the role of the high priest was to shoulder the burden of Israel. And so they were also given the shoulder, the breast and the shoulder. God is very intentional in the way he lays all these things out. And we understand again, one more time, Christ is seen because he has a heart for us. And he shoulders our burdens. And I want to tell you this. Tonight, God's heart is so turned toward you. So in love with you is he. That 3,500 years ago... He painted these pictures so you would know that his heart is towards you and that he wants to shoulder your burdens. This is a passionate God who cares deeply for you. Verse 35, this is that which is consecrated to Aaron and that which is consecrated to his sons from the offerings by fire to the Lord in that day when he presented them to serve as priests to the Lord. And these the Lord had commanded to be given from the sons of Israel in that day that he anointed them. It is their due forever. Throughout their generations, this is the law, the burnt offering, the grain offering, the sin offering, the guilt offering, the ordination offering, and the sacrifice of peace offerings, which the Lord commanded Moses at Mount Sinai on the day that he commanded the sons of Israel to present their offerings to the Lord in the wilderness of Sinai. Father, thank you for this word. Thank you, Lord, for all of your speaking tonight. Thank you for our opportunity just to hear from you in various different ways. And Father, I pray once again, you will give this body, this fellowship discernment. You will raise us up, knowing you and passionate for you, and solid in your word. But also, Father, not afraid of what your spirit is able to do among us. We do not want to quench your spirit. So, Father, tonight we offer ourselves to you. Thank you for loving us in Jesus' name. Amen.